0: There we go, so we are continuing our series in the book of First John. Tonight we are in 1 John 2, verses 12 through 17, uh, in a message titled, Maturing in Love. So I'm going to ask if you guys would uh, flip there, when you're there, would you guys stand and we're going to read through this section together. First John 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the father. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You may be seated. Father, thank you for this evening and this opportunity that we have to get to come together as your people, as your little children, Lord, and we get to hear your word, study your word, Lord. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only it can do in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, that we would be transformed by this word, Lord, that we would be um, just illumined to things that you would like to bring to us, Lord. Help us to change. Help us to be not just hearers of the word or readers of the word, but doers of the word, Lord. Help us to do your will always, Father. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So a short little section here that kind of has a little bit of what would seem as an odd break. We've got three verses, and most of your Bibles probably have another section break, and then three more verses that we're gonna cover. But as we look here in just six short verses, there's kind of four main points that John lays out. The first thing is going to be a purpose. It says, I am writing to you. He gives the purpose for what he's writing. And then an encouragement in the first few verses. Right in the center, a warning. And then finally, a promise in the last verse, in verse 17. So in verse 12, it says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you on account of his name. Here's why I'm writing you. He, he gives the, the, the thing right out of the gate here. Here's why I'm writing you. You are God's children. You're saved. You're forgiven. That's, that's the purpose that I'm writing you. Now, we know that he used this actually up in, in the first uh, part of this chapter. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There was a purpose there, and there's a purpose down here in 12. And as we take a look at this word, or two words, I guess here, little children, is a single Greek word, technion. Now, technion uh, is, is actually a kind of a derivative of, of another word, but it actually refers to an even smaller version. So there's technion, which is a form of technon, but, but the difference is a, a smaller version of a child. The literal meaning is actually born ones. So in general, it can just mean anyone that is a, a born person, that is a child at some point in their life. And there's a little bit of a debate here on the way some of the wordings uh, play out, and we'll we'll take a look as we move through these different people that John is going to address here. Um, But he's definitely addressing uh, age categories as we move on. At the beginning here, though, I don't believe he's addressing a certain age category, and I'll tell you why. Uh, This word is used actually by Jesus in John 13. Um, in the upper room as he's getting ready to depart from his disciples, he calls them technion, my little children. So, it's not necessarily referring to literal um, children, of course, right, as he's speaking to these disciples, but he's talking in a spiritual sense, uh, and you can really hear his heart in this. I think when you call someone a a little child or little children, it's going to be different than just saying regular child or something like that. I have a a daughter, one-year-old, and I could tell you that I have a daughter. And that would be true. That would be correct. You guys would say, well, yeah. But I could also tell you that I have a sweet little girl. And you see the difference there between just talking about a daughter or a child or my little children or my sweet little girl. It's a term of affection. And that's what John is using here. Jesus used it with his disciples. And now many years later, John is using it with his disciples, if you will, these readers that he's addressing. He's referring to them as his little children. Now, John uses this term actually quite a few other times, at least five other times in this letter. He's already used it up earlier in there, but we can just really get this idea of John's heart. He's writing this probably later in his life, um, maybe, you know, into his 80s, 90 years old. And so he could be a believer 60, 70 years or more at this point in time as he writes. And we get this picture of this kind of grandfatherly figure, right, with all of this, this wisdom, this many years of relationship with the Lord. And he's now, uh, you know, talking about these people that, that he loves so dearly, these ones that are, that are his followers. And so I think there's a good application point here as we kind of take a look and we say, maybe no matter where we're at in our lives, in our spiritual walk, do we have people that we look at as little children in the faith, as John did? He had deep care and concern. We're going to get more into that as he writes this letter. I mean, this whole purpose for for writing this letter is to help build them up, to encourage them, to exhort them. And as I was studying, I asked myself, you know, do I have people like that? Are there people that are maybe spiritually younger than me that I have that great deep care and concern for, that I want to impart the wisdom of God that I have learned in my life as a believer and as a follower of him? And so as we get into the next part, he's going to go into his encouragement, He's going to address three different types of spiritual levels of maturity, three different types of believers. So we'll, we'll take a look at that here. He first says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And so this first one that he addresses here is fathers. These are people that are more mature in their spiritual walk, in their spiritual life. These are people that have had a, a, a lot of years of communing with the Father, of fellowship with him. And says, you have known him who has been from the beginning. He's, of course, talking about Jesus. We know in John 1.1, 1, 1, we all know that verse, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the one here that he knows. And overall, God has this this, uh, kind of expectation, I think, of spiritual maturity. And he's beginning to lay that out. So there's this encouragement, but he's also going to define three different sets of believers. The fathers, the young men, and then the children, the younger ones. And this process of spiritual maturity, we know as sanctification, right? We know that there's an expectation when we're a believer on day one that we haven't attained this great level of spiritual maturity yet. But maybe by year five, we're hopefully moving along a little bit more. There's some fruit in our life. There's some changes. Maybe people on the outside can see that. And then maybe by year 10 and 20, and as we progress, the sanctification process continues. And it's really something that um, is seen not just here, but elsewhere in Scripture. Paul gives an example in 1 Corinthians 13, um, and he's contrasting... Uh, what the believers are able to receive in terms of meat and milk. Most of you guys know this in, in 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm just paraphrasing, and he says, I, I wanted to come and I wanted to give you this, this solid food. I wanted to give you something for a mature person, but but you just weren't ready. You just weren't there yet. And it really wasn't done in a, in a positive sense, right? We know that in, in different levels of spiritual maturity, again, there's some Uh, basic levels that are to be expected, right? We're not going to expect a lot out of a newer believer, but in this case, he was coming to people that should have been mature believers, but they just weren't there. And also, the writer of, of Hebrews expresses something similar, and he says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. For by this time you ought to be teachers. But you have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God. And you have come to need milk. And not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. And so, again, here, the expectation that we see scripturally that we should be growing up as believers. At some point, we move on from milk to meat, we have this transition in our lives. Now, I mentioned that I have a little girl, and she just turned one, so she's growing teeth. They haven't all come in yet, and she still drinks a lot of milk, right? She hasn't, she's not quite ready to chew the steak yet. She's not at that level, so I wouldn't have that expectation from her, right? But we would certainly have that from someone older. Let's say we went out to a restaurant. We were going to go out for a steak dinner, and my family and my wife and I are out there, and we end up, uh, you know, ordering steak. She orders a steak, and the the waiter or waitress comes to my my little girl and obviously is going to look over her and not expect her to order the steak, right? She's probably got a little bottle of milk. But what if the waiter looked at me, assuming I'm going to order a steak, and I pulled a little bottle out of my my bag, and I said, oh, no, it's okay. I I haven't learned to chew yet. I'm just going to suck on the little bottle here. Brought my own food. You guys would think I was crazy, right? We have this expectation that people move and that people progress in their natural lives, But we should also have that same expectation that people will move and progress in their spiritual lives, correct? There's a spiritual practice here. And what about people in the church? We talk about this this natural age progression, but what about people in the the church? I sadly have, have known people that have been maybe in the faith for many years, but still maybe haven't hit those levels of spiritual maturity that they should have been. Now again, there's sanctification, there's a process, and we don't want to put undue expectations on people, but commensurate with your age in the faith, there should be some signs of spiritual maturity, right? And so sometimes we see people 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the faith, but they're still on the milk, and that's not where we should be, brothers and sisters. We should be on this ever-growing path of maturity, So again, as we look here, fathers is the first group addressed, and the Greek word is, of course, speaking about fathers, but again, this is a spiritual meaning, not just a physical meaning here. It would be referring to those that are more mature in the faith. It can actually be a title of honor or or respect that you would refer to someone as like an elder or somebody older. Um, And it says, I'm writing to you because you know him who has been from the beginning, right? And again, it's Jesus that they know. But the word here, for know is interesting. It's gnosko, and it's to learn to know or to come to know, but it's through experience. It speaks of a deeper relationship that you would have. It's not just a, a mental recognition or cognition of something, but it implies a deep relationship. It's actually a word that's used of sexual intimacy between a husband and wife, and, and it describes this deeper level of connection, this deeper level of fellowship. And that's what he's saying to the father: you know intimately him who was from the beginning. You've had a life of fellowship, many long years getting to know him. And then there's a delineation between fathers and the next group addressed, young men. And it's not that the young men don't know him. It's not that that they don't have this deep relationship. They're growing. They're on that journey, but they just haven't quite hit that level yet. But they're also further along than the next group that we're going to look at, So, to the young men, John says, You have overcome the evil one. There's this this second bit of encouragement. You have overcome the evil one. Remember, Gnosticism was uh, something that was around at this time, and it threatened the church and it threatened the believers. And many people were maybe succumbing to these false ideas and these false teachings, but not these guys. So, he's giving them that encouragement. You have overcome the evil one. The word for young men, neoniskos, refers to a youth or a student or maybe an apprentice. Uh, Most scholars would agree that it would be somebody under the age of 40, physically speaking. So again, it's this kind of maybe middle-aged believer is what uh, he's referring to here, right? And the youths, again, they have overcome the evil one. many of you guys know that that's not a simple or an easy process, right? Anybody find it easy to overcome the evil one in your daily life? Nobody, not a one. Good for you guys. (laughs) It is not an easy thing. Um, in theory it is, right? We have the spirit of God living in us. He's already overcome the enemy, but walking that out and practicing it is a little bit different. But it's something that we must continu- continually learn to do. If you've been with us recently in Exodus, we've been looking at the Israelites coming out of Egypt and we've uh, seen already and we've also looked ahead into the times that they're they're wanting to turn back. They're wanting to go back. They're wanting to give up. And Egypt, of course, you know, representing Uh, a picture of the world or Pharaoh representing a picture of Satan and evil. It's so easy to want to turn back. I think an important part of that is once we experience deliverance, much like the Israelites did, once we experience salvation, it's not a golden ticket um, necessarily that we're not going to experience these temptations, these battles. And that is a learning process. The Israelites struggled with it for 40 years, right? So of course, we're going to struggle with that same thing too. But it is important to know, I think, that, yeah, that our salvation doesn't necessarily guarantee our ability to overcome the evil one. We're going to look in the next verse on how it is that that happens. And then John addresses um, the final group here in verse 13. And he addresses them here as children. Now, this is a little different where, from where he said little children. It's not the word technion that we looked at. It's the Greek word pideon. And this one is distinct in that it refers to an even much younger child. We could say that it would be like an infant or a baby. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's actually used of Jesus at his birth. It's used of Jesus when he was presented at the temple at only eight days old. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used of baby Moses in the basket placed into the Nile. So it refers to this very, very young infant. Not necessarily a little child. If we had to put an age on it, let's say five to ten for a little child, but let's say zero to one in this case, these infants, these really, really young ones. And so while this term is is different, some people would say that it addresses before. There's some debate among scholars and say, well, if you look at this flow, it says little children, fathers, young men, and then now children, fathers, and young men in verse 14. But there is a difference in in these words, and, and there is a purpose to that. Either way, whether you want to say that it's the same group or whether it's a different group that's being addressed, what he says to them is that your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, and you know the Father. Either way, you look at it. It's this basic, elementary understanding. You know the Father. That's what happens when we come to faith, right? We have this understanding of God, we have this kind of you know, scales lifted from our eyes type of experience. And we know who he is. We know that he's been forgiven. But at the same time, we don't know all the deep, intimate, secret things of God yet, right? We haven't been on that journey of sanctification. We haven't been discipled. We haven't had years of studying his word to know what that looks like. And so there's this element of a childlike faith. I'll use my daughter as another example again. She keeps popping up tonight. It's amazing how you have a daughter, and then all of a sudden the Lord uses it to uh, speak to you and to be able to teach others. Uh, And I know most of you in this room are parents, so you can all understand. But my daughter, at one year old, she knows her father, me. She knows her mother, too. Now, she doesn't have a deep, intimate understanding of who we are and how we love her and why we love her. She knows that her needs are met. She whines and cries, and she gets her diaper changed, and she gets fed, and she gets you know, put down to bed with her little blankie, and she gets all those things. But she doesn't know everything that goes behind it, right? She doesn't know that we work jobs and we pay bills, so she has a roof over her head and a warm bed and food and, you know, clean diapers to go on, right? She doesn't have that deep understanding, but she has this beautiful childlike faith. And for us now, as mom and dad, it's interesting and really beautiful picture to kind of look at things through her eyes. But as God is addressing these three different levels here, note that there's there's no difference. They've all had their sins forgiven, right? They all know the Father by default. There's some higher levels, but that doesn't preclude you from some of the lower levels. And it doesn't matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. Before God, positionally, we are all the same, right? It doesn't matter if someone's more mature or less mature year-wise. Now, maybe if someone's a believer for 40 years and isn't mature, you know, God might have, you know, something to say about that. But if there's someone that's truly a new young believer, there's no partiality. God doesn't see them any different, right? The only difference between a baby believer and a mature believer is a little bit of time, right? And the one thing that the mature believers have in common with them is at one point in time, they were a baby believer as well, right? Have all of us in this room all been a baby believer at some point? Of course. So we should have no reason to look down on anyone because of that. That's not uh, something that should be happening or, or going on here. So the word pideon again, um, actually we're going to jump to uh, 1 Corinthians 14.20. Paul uses this word, but where John's using it in a positive sense, Paul's going to use it in a little bit of a negative sense. It's going to be a little bit of a warning. 1 Corinthians 14.20, he says, Brethren, do not be Pideon, do not be children, infants, in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. He's essentially telling them, grow up. That's what he's saying here. Don't be children in your thinking. In evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Now again, every, every church is... Going to be filled with these believers. Every church is going to have baby believers, and that is really a great and beautiful thing to have. It gives an opportunity for more mature believers in the faith to pour into them. Right? It's a body of Christ working together. We all have roles and responsibilities. When we're given this uh, this great gift, we're supposed to do something with it, right? We're not just supposed to hold it to ourselves and say, "Well, I have this great relationship with the Lord, and it's all mine, and I'm going to keep it secret." No, we're supposed to freely give that to others and, and share. And always remember that babies aren't supposed to stay babies. So while it's great that we have the younger ones, they do grow up with age. You notice that babies really only make work for other people. I've noticed that, and all the parents in the room, I'm sure, would notice that, right? I see some chuckles, look at that. I'm gonna tell your kids after. But you know, when my wife and I were, were married and before we had a daughter, whenever we wanted to go somewhere or do something, it was great, we just walked out of the house and went. Not anymore right? Now it's packed the diaper bag and five sets of clothes and diapers and the stroller and you lug it on and you go out to the car and you load her up and it takes us an hour to get out of the house and go anywhere. These babies make more work, right? But we expect that, right? At one year old, I'm not going to expect anything different from her. But what do you think I'm going to expect at 10? I'm not changing diapers. I'm not going to push her in a stroller at 10 years old. Similarly, we should expect that from people spiritually. Sometimes we just kind of, oh, well, they're, they're just still at this little phase. Sometimes we can we can give a little bit more of an encouragement and an exhortation, and we can kind of push people. Don't we all need that sometimes? It's easy to be complacent. It's easy to want other people to do things for us. Again, that's, that's babies. They just expect that someone's going to clean up their mess and feed them and do everything. And as human beings, sometimes we can be a little bit lazy in that area. But we shouldn't be that. We should be working to grow, and we should be working to mature. I'm 34. I'd love someone to push me around in a stroller and make my food all the time and do all that kind of stuff, but it ain't going to happen, right? And you guys would think I was crazy if I expected it to happen. So why would we think differently of someone in a spiritual sense, right? Our Western American church its kind of this consumer-focused, consumer-centric type thing and We can think that the church is about us, and we have sometimes immature believers in the church that expect that everyone's going to do everything for them and cater to them and, you know, just make sure everything is nice. That's not it. The church isn't about you or me. The church is about him, amen? We need to have that focus. I'm going to ask you a question. This is an easy one. How old are you, spiritually speaking? Just think about it. How many years have you known the Lord? For me, it's been about 11 years. You guys all have your number in your head, roundabout. Some of you guys don't have enough fingers and toes to count. But (laughs) Now, how about your level of spiritual maturity? Does it line up with your spiritual age? I know I had to take an honest look at that this week, right? As I'm preparing, I had to look and go, okay, 11 years, does that that match up? I can tell you the first couple years didn't look so great, and I would probably say the same for most of you. You guys had your your ups and downs, your struggles, your bumps and your bruises. But I can tell you in the last probably for sure 10, but maybe even more so in the last five to seven years, there's been this kind of exponential growth. And I praise the Lord for that. That's not something that I've done. That's something that he's done. Sometimes it's easy to think about ourselves and think that we've had this great growth, but maybe we aren't the best judge. And so I look around and I ask. And in the course of doing this, I ask my wife ask the people around me closest, hey, do, do things match up? Do things line up? Am I where I'm supposed to be, spiritually speaking? We'll go down to verse 14. And you'll notice that it's really very similar. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. Identical wording. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Interesting. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So John's repeating this, most likely for emphasis, right? Trying to get this point across again, trying to encourage even more, because you know him who is from the beginning. It doesn't get any better than that, right? I mean, that's kind of like the ultimate sense that we could say that we have a changed, you know, spiritual maturity is just to know him, Right? Paul tells us that, Philippians 3.10, he says, I want to know him. That's all Paul wants. That should be all that we want in a deeper sense. Yes, there's other things that go along with that. But ultimately, we should want to know him. That's what we should be looking for. Again, it's that Greek word, gnosko, this deep, intimate level. Have you ever sat down with a believer like that, that really knows him Someone older in the faith, again, 20, 30, 40, 50 years maybe in the faith. You ever had a meal with them? Ever had coffee with them? The love of the Lord just kind of oozes out of people like that, right? I'm hoping you know at least one. And you just know that that person has this deep, rich, intimate relationship with the Lord. Why? Because they love. Love is one of the main markers that we can see of spiritual maturity it's all about love. Sometimes we can think that maturity looks like the person that's got 100 Bible verses memorized. Oh, that's the spiritually mature one. Or the guy at church with the biggest Bible. Or it could be uh, you know, a missionary or someone who's you know, sold all they have and you know, given all their possessions away. But that's not the case. Paul warns the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 13 about that, right? So if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, have nothing. Right? You guys remember that verse? If I have the gift of prophecy and all wisdom and all knowledge, but I don't have love, profits me nothing. See, it's all about love here. So back to verse 14. In in addition, when he's addressing young men, there's a, a few words that are not there in 13 that we see in 14. It's kind of the secret to overcoming the evil one. He says, young men, I have written to you because you are strong, because you are strong. Strength, we could all say, is probably a, an important task to have when we overcome the evil one. The Psalms and many other, um, many other sections in the scriptures are filled with verses about the Lord being our strength right? We're not strong on our own power, but the Lord is our strength. And here's the secret to their strength as we continue in verse 14. It says, the word of God remains in you. The word of God is what gives them the strength. Turn with me to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, several books back. We're going to start in verse 10 and go down to verse 17. which is the word of God. That is the key piece in the armor. You guys have, I'm sure heard it said, probably from Pastor Michael here. As we look at these pieces of armor, the first five listed are defensive pieces of armor. But the last one, the Sword of the spirit, is the only offensive piece. It's something that we are to use to fight, to overcome the evil one. That's what we're told here. It's the number one tool that we have. It's a tool that Jesus used when he battled the evil one himself. In Matthew 4, Satan comes and tempts him. What does he do? He responds with the word of God each and every time. That is what he used. And this, for us, brothers and sisters, is why biblical literacy is so important. We need to know this word. We need to know what it says. We need to know so that we can deal with the counterfeit. Again, Gnosticism, all these other things were coming in at this time. People were denying certain things about the Lord and about Jesus and about his deity and divinity and what that looked like and his, his death on the cross and his resurrection. There was so much um, just wrong teaching. And we face that today, do we not? How many false gospels, false doctrines do we face? Just a barrage, let alone the things from the world, from outside, but even things that claim Christianity. Christianity. We need to know the word. We need to be biblically literate so that we can, we can fight. We need to use this word to fight against the evil one. We ask, before you guys knew God, before you knew him, before you knew his word, I'm sure you probably tried to battle some of the evil out there. You probably tried to battle the enemy, even though you didn't really know it or have a full understanding at that time. And I would just say, how did that work out for you? Probably not so good. But after becoming a believer, after knowing the the word of God, this is the essential tool that we have to fight that battle. So we need to be reading this. We need to be understanding this. We need to be studying this. And in this case, the readers here, it says, the word of God abides in them. They didn't just know it. They didn't just read it. It lived in them. It wasn't an intellectual knowledge something that they lived out. They believed it. They put it into practice. And that's what separated them from the spiritual infants, from the younger ones. They had learned not just to know God and know who He is, know about Him, but they learned to put the Word into practice. They learned to use it to combat the evil one. He asked, does the Word of God abide in you? Does the Word of God abide in me? something that I think we need to take a close look at. Jesus says this in John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. He goes on to say later, for apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. But on the flip side, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. As we move along here, now we're going to come to the warning in verse 15. Verse 15. John issues this, he says, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. So he's built them up, but now he's giving them a warning. There's something that that's required of them. There's something that they need to be on the lookout for. If anyone loves the world, he goes on to say, the love of the Father is not in him. It's one or the other. Mutually exclusive, right? I think John's making the point here that one of the steps to spiritual maturity is turning away from the world. It's not loving the world anymore. But turning to God. The Greek word for world here is cosmos, and it's um, used a few different times in the New Testament and refers to a few different things. One, it can refer to the, the physical material world, the things that were created rocks and dirt and ocean and all those different things, talking about the earth. It's also used to talk about the inhabitants of the earth us, you and me, humanity people. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the cosmos is what it says, that he gave his only begotten son. And it's also used here in 1 John, of course. But here it's talking about the ways of the world. It's not talking about the physical creation, right? That's what God created. God doesn't create anything evil or bad, so it can't be that. So what's John talking about? He's talking about this present world, this present order of things, this this dark world. In the kind of Jewish way of thinking at that time, they would say that it refers to anything opposed to the kingdom of Christ and hence always with the idea of transience, worthlessness, and evil, both physical and moral, the seat of cares, temptations, and irregular desires. It's a set of values and beliefs and appetites held by non-believers that run contrary to the word of God. That is the world that we're not supposed to love. Paul addresses this in Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the enemy, Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Jesus also calls Satan the prince of this world. He's the one that is ruling this, and it's it's separate. It's the the world's kingdom, the earthly kingdom, versus God's kingdom. That's the differentiation here again, Jesus in John 12, 31 calls him the prince of this world. You guys have heard it said that we are in the world, but we're not of the world, right? It's not an actual literal Bible verse, but the idea is picked up out of John 15 and John 17 as Jesus is speaking about himself and also the disciples. And he says, you are not of the world. I have chosen you out of the world. He goes on to say, and the world has hated them, referring to the disciples as Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer in John 17 to the Father. He says, the world has hated them because they are not of this world. And then Paul picks up this idea as well in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, the ways of this world. Don't be conformed to that. Don't buy into that. Don't follow that system. But what does he say instead? To be transformed— By the renewing of your mind. This word transformed is a a cool word in Greek. It's called metamorpho. It's where we get the uh, scientific term metamorphosis, something that's changing. In relation to uh, an insect or an amphibian, here's a dictionary definition it's the process of transformation from an immature form into an adult in two or more distinct stages. Or it's also a change of form of the person or nature of a thing into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. It's quite interesting. That's a dictionary definition, by the way. That's not a commentary. That's not anything biblical. Maybe by supernatural means there's a change. We think of 1 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is... You guys are kind of quiet out there a new creature, a new creation. I want to kind of just hammer this point home. This idea is continued not only by Jesus, not only by Paul, but James as well. In 127, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and finally to keep oneself unstained by the world. We're supposed to be separate and distinct from the world not to let that suck us in. He further goes on in 4.4 to say, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, picking up on almost the same idea that John uses here. Those that love the world can't love God. Another interesting thing is that the word love is the word agape. Agape. You guys are familiar with that, I'm sure. And we commonly think of that this is God's love. This is this deep love that that we can't muster really on our own. We need his spirit to help us do this. It's an unconditional love, but more importantly, it's a a love that's an act of the will. So it's not something that I do because I, I feel love for someone, but I choose love. And John says, don't agape the world. In John 3, the same word is used, the gospel of John 3. And Jesus says this. He says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and that men loved, agape the darkness rather than the light. Again, there's two options as we keep seeing over and over. It's one or the other. It's the world or it's God. It's the ways of the world or it's the ways of God. The will, if you will, of the world or the will of God. So Jesus says men love the darkness rather than the light. In their fleshly state, apart from the power of his spirit, we're not able to do that. We need his power to be able to do that. We're told that light has no fellowship with darkness. We're told so many times throughout the scriptures that you cannot love the light and love darkness. You cannot love the world. You cannot love, excuse me, you cannot love the world and love the Father. Mutual exclusivity here. So if we don't love the world... What's the opposite? What are we supposed to do? He goes on to say, we are to do the will of God. And this can be another mark of our spiritual maturity, right? we talked about love being a mark of that. Is your love for God evident in your life? Would those closest around you say that you have a love for God? Or would others around you say that maybe you have some love for the world still? Again, there's spiritual maturation that takes place. It's a process. And we're learning, and by God's grace, he helps us do that. But what marks your life? What's more evident in your life? What's more evident in my life, right? I'm not picking on any of you guys. I'm speaking to myself at the same time. As we progress in our spiritual journey, we're, we're supposed to see an increase, this kind of corresponding increase of the love of God, and that should be going up, And by contrast, a hatred of the things of the world. We should not choose to love the world, that agape love. We can't make that choice anymore. We have to choose to love God. And in verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. All the evil that's in the world, it can be kind of boiled down or categorized or condensed into these three things. These are the three tools, if you will, that Satan uses to try to entrap and try to ensnare people. And really, it's kind of the extent of his playbook that's all he's got, are kind of these, these three ways that he's going to go after us. Now, within those three ways, there's a lot of different, you know, ways that he does attack. But those are the three main categories here. And we see these same three things that he used to attack two different people in the Bible. One is Eve, and one is Jesus. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 4. You guys would turn there with me, please. We're going to look at how the enemy tempted Jesus in his response. We're going to look at the three specific ways. While you do that, briefly, I'll just recount the story you guys know in Genesis 3 when the serpent comes to tempt Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she looks at it, and she saw that it was pleasing to the eyes the lust of the eyes, that it was good for food, the lust of the flesh, it would feed the appetite, and that it would make one wise, make one like God, the pride of life. Those are the three tactics that he used, and we're going to pick those up here in Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and he said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's the first one that he uses, the lust of the flesh. Jesus was hungry, right? He, he appealed to this, this lust of the flesh. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The pride of life, that God would save him. And Jesus said to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, the lust of the eyes. He looked up at all these things. These are the ways that Satan tempts us, right? From Eve to Jesus and to us, to you and I today. There's nothing new under the sun. He's using the same tactics, the same evil. But notice that these are lusts of the world. Not necessarily sins of the world. So what do we make of that? Well, we often think that maybe if we don't sin physically, externally, it's okay. I didn't act out on it, so it's all right. What's wrong if I look at this website on the internet? No one's going to know about it. What's wrong if I drink a little more than I should on the weekend? No one's going to know about it. Not physically... um, Well, I guess in that case, you are physically acting out. Strike that one from the record. I think you guys understand what I'm saying here. There's a lot of times that we can have lust, but we don't act out on it. Right? Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone that looks at a woman with lust in his eye has committed adultery in his heart. The heart is what he's concerned about, it's not those outside things. Practically speaking, these lusts are any sinful or impure desire that is contrary to the will of God. You can think of it that way. I'll read a little bit from my notes here. Um, found something that summed it up a lot better than I could. So bear with me as I go through this. It says Christians have always been and always will be lured by the same three temptations even Jesus experienced. Satan doesn't change his methods. He doesn't have to, because they continue to be successful. He tempts us with the lust of the flesh, sexual gratification, gluttony, excessive alcohol consumption, and drugs, legal and illegal, as well as the deeds of the flesh, which Paul warned about to the Galatians. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rage, rivalries dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's kind of interesting as we look at this list, about half of these things would appear to affect just the person committing them. Things like sexual gratification, gluttony, excessive alcohol, drugs. But there's a lot of other things that really talk about disunity or division amongst brethren, amongst others. And that's a scary thing to look out for rivalries, dissensions, divisions, fits of anger, strife, jealousy, enmity. There's a lot of different things here. This writer goes on to say, he tempts us with the lust of the eyes, the endless accumulation of stuff with which we fill our homes and garages and the insatiable desire for more, better, and newer possessions which ensnare us and hardens our hearts to the things of God. But perhaps his most evil temptation is the pride of life, the very sin that resulted in Satan's expulsion from heaven. He desired to be God, not to be a servant of God. The arrogant boasting which constitutes the pride of life motivates the other two lusts as it seeks to elevate itself above all others and fulfill all personal desires. It is the root cause of strife in families, in churches, and in nations It exalts the self in direct contradiction to Jesus' statement that those who would follow him must take up their cross and deny themselves. The pride of life stands in our way if we truly seek to be servants of God. It is the arrogance that separates us from others and limits our effectiveness in the kingdom. The pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And as such, it is passing away with the world But those who resist and overcome the temptation of the pride of life do the will of God. And the man who does the will of God lives forever. I would ask, brothers and sisters, are you guys battling in any of these areas tonight with these temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life? And I would say, I hope that you are. You might say, why would you hope that I'm battling with these things? Well, if you weren't battling, I think there would be a problem, right? I would say on one hand, maybe you're just so insulated from the outside world. um, That's probably not a good thing. Maybe on the other side, you could maybe just be so kind of careless and flippant in your relationship to the world and these things that you don't even see it as a battle. And I pray that wouldn't be the case. I pray that you would find this a battle. I pray that you would every day be facing these things. I pray that you would have the sword of the spirit. I pray that you would have the full armor of God that you would put it on, that you would suit up, that you would be prepared for that battle because it's every day and it's constant. And so as we wrap up the last verse here, it says, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. This world and all that's in it, all of its lusts are passing away. Everything we have here is temporal. Temporal. I think we sometimes think of that a little bit consciously and know, yeah, well, I, I know my life is temporal. I know I'm not going to be here on earth forever and have eternal life, but here on earth, probably not. But why do we lust after things that aren't temporal? Why is it so easy for us to do that? You guys ever find difficulty with that? It's so easy to start amassing things and acquiring things and looking at things that we think are going to fill us and give us pleasure and desire and gratification. It's going to make us whole and complete. But those things of the world are never going to do that. Jesus warns in a couple different parables in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 12, you know, beware that you don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where none of that would happen. In Luke 12, the parable of a greedy man who had land that produced much fruit. And he said, I got to tear down my barns. I got to build bigger ones. And I'm going to store food. And I'm going to have food for a long time. And then I can take it easy. I can rest. I can relax. I can enjoy my life. (coughs) Many of you guys know that parable. What does God say? He said, you fool. This very night, your life will be required of you. Sometimes people spend their whole life chasing after these things that are temporal. We chase after things that won't even last our lifetime, let alone eternity, right? How many of you guys maybe get all excited, you're going to go out and buy the new car and you love it and it smells nice and new and shiny and every Saturday you're out in the driveway washing it for about three months and then, ah, eh, it's all right. And after about five years, got a few door dings and guess what? You're on to the next car, you want another one. That car's not even going to last you that long. And we chase so many other things, so many things in this world that are temporal, but the world and its lusts are passing away. I was talking with Pastor Michael and he brought up something really interesting, something to kind of ponder that I wanted to share with you guys. Have you ever thought about a conversation that you might have in eternity, maybe 10,000 years from now, about the fact that this earth is going to pass away? Jesus tells us that in Matthew 24, that heaven and earth will pass away. This earth at some point will cease to exist no longer. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be with God for eternity. But when someone passes here on earth, someone dies, we say that they've passed on, they've passed away. We think that about people, but have you ever thought all that is in this big, beautiful earth will all pass away? At some point, whatever that number of years looks like, we're going to look back and go, man, it's all gone. We probably will barely remember that. might think of some of the things we did or some of the things we had. But would you agree that none of that's going to matter at that point? You're going to look back and you're going to start craving all those things that you wanted here? No. We're not going to do that. And a beautiful promise at the end to wrap it up. The one who does the will of God. Lives forever. Eternal life is that promise, the beautiful promise that we've been given. And John has already encouraged these readers, these believers in the beginning that they had that. They had an assurance of their salvation. And I hope that all of you guys in this room have that assurance of salvation. I hope that you would all consider yourselves little children of God, little dear ones that he loves. But remember that with that comes some requirement. Comes this idea of sanctification, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And I would say that if that's not you, if you're not confident that you are a little child, what are you waiting for? That promise, that gift of life that was offered and accepted by these believers is open to you, you guys online, you guys listening later, whatever that looks like. Cry out to the Lord, accept that free gift of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Would you pray with me, church? Thank you, Lord, for your beautiful word that speaks to us. Thank you that you have called us your little children, as John refers to these little children. We know that we are your little children, Lord. And no matter where we are at in our faith journey, and our level of maturity, Lord, I, I pray that we would press on, that we would strive for growth, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, all the believers here. Would you fill us with your spirit, empower us by the power of your spirit and by your word, Lord, to stand firm against the evil one, to battle the evil one, the things of this world, all that is in this world, Lord, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Be with us always. Protect us. Watch over us, Lord. Help us to be again, just doers of your word, not merely hearers. I pray that as we leave here, that we would would take something that we can use. God, I pray that you would use your word to perfect us and to grow us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.